What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Silver Linings Playcast. I'm your host, Jamie Ward, and I'm the host of the Silver Linings Playcast. As far as I know, it's the only podcast solely devoted to talking about Silver Linings Playbook, the movie, and the Silver Linings Playbook, the book. I probably messed up that intro because it has been quite a while since we have had a real and decent episode of the podcast, but we're going to give it a shot. It probably won't be super long. I'm recording on the road. I'm in my car. I am in Alabama. Uh, I have got back from um, recording my special in Utah last week. Let's just talk about that for a second before we get into SLP stuff, because I've been having people asking me all about it. And one, I was filming special for Drybar, a company uh, based, it's, it's a brand of comedy specials, it's a comedy branch of VidAngel, I think it's called, Vid, VidAngel, VideoAngel, VidAngel, based out of Provo, Utah, and what they are is a company that basically sanitizes um, TV shows and movies for um it is it's a mormon company i believe i'm not sh- i'm not sure if the company is actually mormon but it is located in provo where i believe 96% of the population is mormon but it but it caters to anybody that basically wants to be able to put content filters on any of their media for their families for whatever reason. It's much like the way movies and TV shows are censored for airplanes, and you can put different filters on if you care specifically about language, violence, sexual content, or whatever, um, alcohol and drug use. So if they do have a Silver Linings Playbook version, which I'm not 100% sure whether they do or not, but we'll find out. Maybe we should look that up and watch that, right, and see how it differs. Let's see what people that want to sanitize a G-rated version of Silver Linings Playbook would be like, and would it still have the impact? I believe it would. Well, I say that. I think there's a couple scenes that might not have quite the emotional oomph because there's some really strongly delivered lines that have some adult language that, for sort of comedic effect, I think need the heightened emotional stakes to get to that point. Anyway, we'll look that up. We'll find out. I have not done any research on it because that's not really what I'm talking about at the moment. We're talking about filming my comedy special, which was 25 minutes. There was a show. There was two shows at 7 and 9 o'clock, and there was three comics on it. We were each filming a 25-minute special. There was a host who did a great job. There was a little reset in between each of us, but other than the momentary reset so that we could get positioned on stage and then make it seem like we were the first people to be out on stage for the filming, it was sort of like a regular comedy club show. With the exception, it is the cleanest show I have ever done in my life. Now, let me say, it was not the cleanest set I've ever done in my life. The show just needed to be the cleanest show there has ever been right the audience is uh made up of regulars they go see 
the new comics perform every week, they record specials every week, and then I think like six months to a year later, they put them out on their channel, where they're available on the Drybar app. So anyway, I have been doing comedy for since 2009, and I have to tell you, I was nervous. And the only reason that it sticks out to me that I was nervous, because one, I'm nervous for every show I've ever done. That's sort of why I like comedy. The nervous energy makes me feel alive, it makes me excited, it makes comedy worth doing. I've never been nervous to the point I've messed up. I don't want to say that I've been perfect every single time, but I want to say in clutch shows, I've done several TV tapings, I've done several high-stakes live shows, I've won contests in front of uh, some big-name industry people. I've been very clutch over a decade, and plus or minus, for shows that I wanted to perform perfectly at. I am more likely to mess up during a set, during a low stakes, but it's just one of the few things in life I've ever been confident in that I know how to do stand-up comedy, I know how to do my sets. Even if you don't think I'm funny, or if you do, I know how to perform my act. I'm going to cut myself a little bit of slack because I was getting back into comedy after a break from, we'll say it's from the pandemic, we'll say that it was during 2020 when I wasn't doing comedy, but it might be because I quit comedy. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. The point is that I would have been doing comedy. And so when I booked the comedy special, I went out and I started doing more sets to try to get myself back into the game, rehearsing, and I'll just say I did not practice as much as I needed to. I wish I had kept up over the last year. There were two shows, and I just want to say the first one, I was not thrilled by it. Now, I am happy that I have a decade of experience. The other two comics were telling me you did fine. I felt fine for half of it. I actually am very happy with the first 10 minutes of it. I started strong. I was nailing all my jokes. The problem is, about 10 minutes in, I got mixed up at where I was. I started inserting stuff that I didn't mean to. I did one bit that I really did not want to do for this audience. It was not dirty, but it was definitely a um it was it was sort of a social commentary topic bit that I really just did not want to do. I wanted to make my half hour squeaky clean. I wanted to do comedy that was just relatable to everybody. I wanted to do comedy that wouldn't be polarizing. It wasn't like opinion based. It was just fun. I did the Batman banking bit. If you're not familiar with that bit, it starts off as sounding like it's going to be about race and racial disparity and racism, and then it goes right into financial <laughs> disparity, and it's talking about how the banking system is set up. To And anyway, it was just way heavier than anything that I had done up to that point. Also, it just came out of nowhere. It was in the middle. It was, I, it was a panic go-to bit. 
Part of the funny thing about this panic bit, too, was it's not even one of the bits I should have gone to for my safety net bit, right? Because it's not a safety net bit. If anything, I should have gone into a bit that was like one of my stupid, super clean, no problem with it whatsoever bits. The reason that this one is stuck in my head is because in a totally different context when I was doing one of my first festivals ever a long time ago back when the Dark Knight Rises first came out which gives you historical context for when I was doing this one right I was in the Laugh Year Asheville Loft Festival I think Laugh Year Asheville 2011 that's when I'm envisioning the poster right I had my seven minute set all set I knew what I was going to do, I had practiced, I had rehearsed, I basically was doing all the comedy I had written that I was proud of in the first year and a half of doing comedy, my first big festival, right, I'm performing along with and for comics that I respect, a little bit of industry, a fantastic audience, uh, a sold out theater and I called my buddy right before, and I told him, I'm thinking about doing this brand new bit, and I shouldn't, tell me I shouldn't, tell me to stick to doing the set that I practiced, and him being one of my best friends, and a fellow comic, absolutely wanted to see me do not the safe thing, the riskiest thing, and we both laughed about it, and I thought, I'm not going to do it. I did it. I did the bit at Laugh Your Asheville Off. I had never done it before. I think I wrote it in the car on the way there. It was just this funny idea I was playing around with in my head, and I ended up doing it, and it went over really well. It went over so well that it uh, has been a staple in in my my sets for the last decade. It's one of my favorite jokes. It's my third favorite bit I've ever written. Uh, one of the reasons I'm very proud of it is that, and this is going to sound terrible, but that I've done it uh, in every sort of demographic audience. It's not every audience likes it. Sometimes older audiences are not fans of it because it's a huge. It relies heavily on references to the Christopher Nolan Batman series, which all I'm saying is that it and uh, it's not um, the pop culture reference can be lost on audiences that have not seen the movie. But pretty much everybody uh, from every other walk of life has really enjoyed the bit. It's very funny. It's very thought-provoking. Anybody that knows me knows I'm not a person to, like, brag on being a great comedian. Not, I don't necessarily think my, my comedy is the best comedy. I'm talking strictly from sort of, like, a work sense. It's a solidly written bit, and it fits well into an act. It's been constructed, crafted, honed, and performed. So my buddy basically convinced me. He's like, hey, he was, he was uh, goading me in the way that he knows, because we're best friends, and he, just, he knows how I am. And he was saying, you know, how Woody Allen used to just write new stuff and perform it on TV for the first time, and I don't know why even that was the reference that sort of just made me feel like, oh, I have to do it, because it's not like, I think Woody Allen is a fantastic comedy writer, 
Um, he is also on the list of sort of disgraced former comedy heroes. It's a weird thing because a lot of his his uh, problematicism came before I even got into comedy. But it's one of those things that I sort of I didn't understand the scope or how to deal with those things when I was first getting into comedy. So all I'm saying is just please give it the context of like, uh, well, we'll say 2011. A lot of the backlash against uh, different celebrities and stuff had not happened, and I'm talking specifically to in the stand-up comedy world. Um, Bill Cosby, like, had historically had his um, accusations against him, but he had not had the full fall from grace that where he basically be, it became more public knowledge. So a lot of this stuff was sort of like hearsay that I did not even know of. I didn't even know the hearsay, right? Because and I think we're doing a great job being a lot more responsible as as consumers of media and the consumers of celebrity entertainment and products. Now we're not perfect. We've got a lot of work left to go too. Basically, we've identified the problem, we've talked about the problem, and now we're ready to move forward by being very consistent and really attacking it head on by not making a place in society for for these predators, for people that use their position in life to take advantage of other people. But the point I'm trying to make about this was, at the moment, uh, he told me that, and I was like, okay, this person that I really admired as a joke writer used to do it, and I didn't even know of him. Like, you don't think of, you think of him as a filmmaker. Very few people today think of him from his stand-up comedy days. And I was like, if he can do that, this stakes aren't even close Right? So, I don't know. I don't know. My buddy Christian flipped the switch in my head, and I did the joke. So, for, because it hit, what happened is the same thing that happens in basically any addict's brain. It's most related to gambling is probably the best example, right? A lot of whether somebody will become a compulsive gambler or have a gambling problem throughout their life, a little bit of that, I believe. Now, don't quote me on this because I'm not a doctor, but uh, I have listened to an episode of This American Life. This sounds ridiculous, right? Like, I'm not a doctor, but I've listened to one podcast on, on it. But no, I, listen, I, I have read and listened to multiple um, sources that are legitimate media sources that suggest the idea that there's a psychological correlation between if the first time you ever do something like gambling and you either win or you have a near miss, uh, a close win, it's more likely to trigger a lifelong compulsion to do that thing in life. I don't know if that's what happened. I think it would actually be pretty interesting to see if there is any correlation between the psychology of compulsive gamblers and or um you know, stand-up comedians. Especially stand-up comedians who get their joy from some some comedians 
love honing the perfect bits and performing them in perpetuity and just reaping the rewards and adulations from doing those honed acts. I, on the other hand, I've had the highs, I've had the lows, it's all random, you know, whether it's deserved or not, but the the real feeling alive I get from stand-up comedy comes from that extreme possibility of failing. So there is nothing more exciting to me, enticing to me, than doing a brand new bit that I've never done. And like a compulsive gambler, it it doesn't feel good in a low-stakes situation. Open mics aren't scary to me. I need stakes. Give me a big show. The more likely I am to, you know, at least whether it's actual a possibility or not, but if I feel like I could ruin my career or at least have a lot of negative ramifications from doing poorly and bombing, that's where you get more enjoyment with my psychology from doing well, too. So, oh no, here we are. So, this is probably what I consider one of the largest opportunities I have had in my career to film a special, right? One of my big comedy goals, when I first got into comedy, all I ever wanted was to do a late-night set. I wanted to do a late-night set because that is how I got into stand-up comedy, listening to late-night sets. That's always been my idea of what made you a stand-up comic. I, I knew there were specials. I knew people recorded albums. I just I wanted, I wanted something. I wanted some official record of having to do comedy so that if I ever didn't do comedy one day, if I retired, if I became a school teacher, if I, you know, made a career in the military or something, I wanted to be able to tell all my coworkers or family members or friends that I met after I was doing comedy and wanted them to be like, hey, I was a comedian. A lot of people say that. You'll be surprised how rarely you meet comedians when you're not looking for it, but then when you start being aware of comedians... It seems like everybody has a, oh, I used to do stand-up comedy. I have a friend, or, or this person does stand-up comedy. My husband, my wife, my son, my daughter, uh, somebody they know does stand-up comedy, right? I just wanted some official record to make me feel like I really had done stand-up comedy, not just the kind like that anybody can do. And I do think you're a real stand-up comic if you're doing if you're doing open mics from the very first time. I mean, I think there's a level where you become a stand-up comic when you're starting to do stand-up comic. Just to stop comedy. Just to me, I needed for my own self some type of in the can, official, print it, release it, air it, whatever it is, uh, stand-up comedy thing. Now I've been very lucky too because I've gotten to do a number of of TV sets. I haven't gotten to accomplish my goal yet of doing a specific... I, I would still love to do a late night thing, but uh, it's interesting, too, what your idea of success in a field often changes as you get into that field and you readjust your goals. And that was one of the things that I found out. A lot of the comics that... I got into, and I definitely always thought that, hey, how cool would it be to get a Comedy Central half-hour special or a cable uh, hour 
special. Everything has changed. Anybody that's listening to this now probably has some relation to stand-up comedy already because they're a comic. Comics are the only people I know. I think the only two people that occasionally listen to this, my friends, I met through stand-up comedy, and depending on which ones you are, may or may not be doing stand-up comedy right now. So everybody knows this. Comedy is different now. Comedy is even different in the year I'm recording this, 2021. It is September 2021, and it is different to do stand-up comedy now than what it was in 2009 when I did my very first set on October 12th, the day after my birthday. So, the goals are different. I have gotten to work with so many amazing comedian headliners, professional comics, a lot who have done both half hours for Comedy Central, hour specials, celebrity comics. Uh, one of my favorite comics, one of the few headliners that I can actually, that, that I sort of feel like I'm a little bit friends with, um... Uh, through having worked with several numerous times throughout the years, one of his credits is that he has multiple appearances on late night uh, talk show sets. Um, anyway, a lot of those things I've learned from those people are not what they thought they would be when they got into them. Also, I've been a person that's been obsessed with stand-up comedy for the last decade of my life. And you find out that a lot of people who don't follow stand-up comedy aren't as aware of people that do any of these things, right? It's a little bit of a niche thing, a uh, medium. The best recognition you get, and that's why I like the late-night sets, because that is most likely to be seen by people that don't regularly follow stand-up comedy. They're just... Uh, you know, that's the market of people that are up late, they watch the late night talk shows, uh, they, they wanted to see the celebrity guest, and sometimes they don't turn it off, and then they end up watching in the rare time that they don't have a band, but they have a comedian, they'll watch the comedian sometimes. They'll be like, ah, oh, that's, that's pretty funny, or something, but they often don't become super fans of that person. It's usually, so what I've learned from the people that have done it, it's a very cool experience, and they've worked very hard in their careers to earn that spot, but it doesn't do much for them outside of of uh, just the bookability. It's mostly inside the industry benefits that they get. They become more bookable in clubs. They're able to do shows. Uh, once a club sees that you have been selected to do a late-night set or you have a special, they're much more likely to book you, depending on the level of the club, but based off of the fact that, oh, you fulfilled this one requirement, we know you're good enough to pass multiple levels of gatekeeping in the industry, the bookers, you've clearly worked on it enough to build an act to get to those things, so we can at least take a little of, of the pressure off of ourselves about knowing, are you, you're probably funny. You're more likely funny than you're not funny. You've been vetted by a whole bunch of different organizations. They still often are skeptical now because it's such a money-driven business and because people don't go out to live entertainment venues, especially for non 
celebrity or people they don't know as much. So that's the reason why this has lost a lot of clout in the industry is because people are not buying tickets as much to go to just a random comedy club that says, hey, we promise to show you people that you will enjoy. You may not know them, but we promise that they're going to be funny. People are so much more drawn to celebrities, people they know. Comedy clubs are booking uh, celebrities that, that don't even have backgrounds in stand-up comedy. They are known for comedic actors. Sometimes they're not even comedic actors. Sometimes they're just celebrities from the news, viral news. You have people that have gone viral on different social media and such. And anyway, all that to say. One of the biggest brands that has emerged in comedy recently is Drybar. Part of that, because the people that run Drybar are very good at social media. I was actually aware of Drybar comedy before I even knew what they were. So when I got the opportunity to record a special for Drybar, I was super excited. And this meant so much to me. Because uh, I know a lot of people that have recorded them, a lot of the mentors and the headliners that took me on the road and helped me throughout my career have gotten to, they're already on the Drybar uh, app. Um, if you have not gotten it already, uh, wait, because when my special gets released, hopefully, hopefully it will make the cut and it will get edited and posted on their lineup, I will have a promo that'll probably be my name anywhere from six months to a year from now where you will be able to download it for free or anything, and I will get credit. But anyway, that's not the important part. The important part is I recorded it, and it got done, even if they don't release it, which happens sometimes. Um, it was a huge thing to me to have the opportunity to... Now where am I going with all this rambling? Let's talk about what happened in between me uh, getting the opportunity, being given the opportunity and privilege to record one, and the 15 minutes on stage of my first set show. I got nervous. I lost my place. I don't even want to say I was nervous because I was not nervous until the final five minutes when I realized what had already happened. I'm usually so in the zone when I do comedy, but then looking back, I realized this wasn't an active thought that was going through my head, but I'm looking back realizing this is a thought I had during my head. Going on in my head. I couldn't even remember which hand I held, I hold the microphone with normally. Part of this is because I haven't practiced enough. Part of this is because I just got back into comedy performing uh, shows about two months ago, which is fine. That's why there was not a huge drop-off. That's why I was able to do everything. And I do want to say, too, my second set, I am super happy with. If they wanted to print the second one as it is, no edits. Just go with the second one. Even though I feel like the first half of the first show was great. I'm just one of those people that 
I will focus on the part that I did not do well, and that is the second half of the first show. I feel also, and part and part of that is because I believe in comedy, it's show business, it's showmanship, which is is bigger than myself. People pay money to get a ticket to be entertained. They deserve to be entertained. They deserve to get their money's worth for the show. Now, the two guys that went ahead of me were fantastic, consummate professionals. They nailed it. They had clearly been practicing, and they did great. They were super funny, super nice, uh, definitely two new friends who I will uh, hopefully see if I ever go out west, they're both California guys, or if either of them come to the southeast, I've invited them to help them out any way I can, but uh, just the experience was great, the audience got their money's worth up until I lost my place, and I was, I kept, I kept moving the microphone back from my right hand to my left hand to my right hand, and eventually I probably held it with both hands right in front of my face more than I've ever held the microphone I've never held the microphone with both hands. I literally couldn't remember which way I normally hold it. So anyway, we got done with the first one. And let's be honest, I know it wasn't great. I know it wasn't great because I have been doing this long enough that the way the other people told me, don't worry, it's great is the proof that it wasn't great. I've not only gotten that talk, given that talk, and seen that talk so much, you know. Right? You know. When you're walking through the back of the stage or around, and the the crew the camera crew and the sound people and they see the other comics and they're like, oh man, you're so funny. Or, great set, great show. Or the audience comes up and sort of says something to them. Um, you know, you walk by and they just look at the ground. Now, I don't know if that's because they saw that I was just visually upset because I had come in that day trying to be super confident and making friends with everybody and doing a good job and stuff uh, and just being a person, doing the selling myself to everybody. But my whole demeanor changed when, um, you know, when I had the first show. The other two were, um, you know, laughing, joking, not in any, not in any, like, terrible way, in ways they deserve, you know? Like, I'll nail the first one, that takes pressure off, gonna go and sort of use the second one to get in some of that material that I didn't get to do in the first one, Right? I was not feeling that way. I was writing notes, going over my set list, all sorts of stuff, trying to make corrections that I needed to make, trying to adjust my play 
list. Um, you know, I was trying to make a sports metaphor. But anyway, I felt so bad. I just hated myself. A lot of nerves going into it. That being said, I want to make a gambling analogy again. I've always been pretty decent at poker. I'm not a great poker player because I get bored, but I usually last a good long time and win because I have a very helpful skill that that gamblers need, and that is I forget the last hand played. I don't literally forget it, but I am able to emotionally put it uh, in my back pocket and not think about it and not let the emotions of a losing hand affect how I play the, the next hand. Is that a good quality in the rest of life? Probably not. It probably comes from compartmentalizing a lot of trauma and burying thoughts that I don't like having. But does it help for uh, being a professional in the entertainment industry or something? Absolutely it does, right? So while I was upset, I let myself have that time. I used the upsetness to refocus myself, let myself know maybe I'm having a little too fun. Maybe I came in here with too much confidence. Make the changes you need. Figure out what you, you need to make better. Come on, Jamie. We've done this thousands of times by now. And I'm not exaggerating. Thousands. The first couple of years I was doing comedy, I did comedy all but five nights the first year I was doing comedy. Sometimes I did it multiple times a night. I stayed pretty consistent like that for several years. I definitely tapered off when I started going on the road or when I started doing longer sets. I stopped chasing multiple five-minute sets a night, but I have done thousands of sets in my time. So the second show starts, and the other two comics do great again. We got a great audience, except for one thing. There's a Provo Heckler. Now, a Provo Heckler is interesting because the Provo Heckler, one, we were all being like, you guys don't even serve alcohol. They probably weren't drunk. They may have gone to the bar next door and got drunk. Some people were speculating that. Also, they were not heckling in a bad way. They were one, oh, they were one of those terrible hecklers where they were trying to just overly enjoy the comedy. They were saying supportive things but they were just being so loud, everybody could hear them. And it was throwing the comics timing off. And it was... I am super nervous now for the new reason. Because, hey, I already didn't do what I wanted to do under basically perfect circumstances. Everything was set up for me, and I didn't deliver. Now you're throwing the one variable that I'm the least prepared to deal with. I have not dealt with a lot of hecklers in my career. Knock on wood, please don't let me do it like for the next 10 years straight. But honestly, I have not had many. People that talk about the amounts they have, um, I don't know if I've just been on good shows or if I've just uh, confused people. or so. I have had a few Every now and then? Really? Not that bad. 
so I watched the first guy. We, we, uh, you know, he comes back and complains a little bit about it. The management, the 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 second guy talks to management. They say they don't want to do anything about it because he's not actually uh, a belligerent heckler. He's trying to enjoy the show. They and um, so he just stays there. We think he leaves while I'm standing backstage. The host comes back and he gets up to leave. Maybe he went to go smoke, get another drink or whatever. We think he's gone. I start to relax. Two minutes before I'm going on stage, I see him walk back in. He and his girlfriend sit back down right smack dab in the middle of the front row. Which was the the main reason why he was bothering the other comics. Because they could hear him and they could clearly see him. They even talked about, hey, maybe they should just get everybody to stand up and move to a different seat. And I don't, I don't want to say like I said no because they, I didn't say anything about it. But I, like I would, I, no, that would have been a little ridiculous, right? It's, it's one of the, the hazards that comes with doing comedy, and they hired us to be professionals. We got to learn to be able to deal with this stuff, right? So we did. Anyway, I get on stage, they announce me, I'm standing behind the curtain, they lift the curtain, I take a big breath, and uh, it's comedy time. All I can say is, I slowed down, I controlled my pacing, I delivered things how I wanted. I still don't remember if I used the correct hand or not, I was still dealing with that subconsciously. But I'm happy with everything else. <laughs> I stuck to my set list. I changed the order. I didn't include jokes that I didn't want to. I hit my time perfectly. I got my closers in because I put some of my normal set closers into the middle of my act to segment it and keep the energy up. I ended on my callback. I set everything up. I don't want to say to anybody who may ever see the set, hey, this was the world's best comedy set. I just want to say to myself, I am proud of how I performed. That's all a comedian can ask, is to do what they intended to do. And that is what I managed. And in typical me fashion... Two, right? If you give me three opportunities to do something, I'm going to throw away two of them and make it exciting for that last one. I don't want to be that kind of person. I would love to one day be the kind of person that can play it safe and just do it clean and nail it the first time so that I can get... That's, it's just not my style. That's not who I am. I, even as much as I wish it was my style, here's the thing... So much about comedy is just being authentic to who you are and doing it how you are. And the fact that I sort of had this whole little uh, adventure within my one night of filming the special, too, just makes it sort of all the more a special experience to me. And a learning opportunity for me, and a proving opportunity for me, and just an overall great experience. Part of the reason, too, that I know the first set was not good because the talent coordinator 
told me after I did the second one, she had she she had told me the first time. She's like, "You did great. You did so much better than you think. It was fine. I seen a lot of people. I wouldn't tell you you did well if you didn't do well. I would have said." But the, during the second set, she told me, "I could see you were way more comfortable. I feel like you hit your groove. I think you know you did better the second one." And in my head, all I could think was, "Oh, so like I appreciate it, your attempt to." Make me feel better about the first time. But also, this means we both know what happened the first time, right? And so, yes, she did. Anyway, so now, none of this has to do with Silver Linings Playbook. I'm sorry. Uh, normally, I try to tie things in. I guess I had an Excelsior moment, right? So, let's, ah, let's just, you know what? Here we are. We're doing the second late night show right now. Let's bring it all home. I had an Excelsior moment, which was very much like when when Pat, you know, does. Oh, you know what it was like? It was like the parlay. That's what. Let's make. Let's do the gambling. The gambling analogy all the way through. Y'all remember in Silver Linings Playbook that Pat makes a parlay bet, uh, which means that it's two bets one contingent on the other one. Uh, you got to win both of them to win, right? They have to beat the spread for the Eagles-Cowboys game, and then they have to score over five at the dance competition. Actually, this is a great analogy, because five is not a good score for the dance competition. But they were so happy, they were happy that they scored high enough to win their parlay bet, but Pat and Tiffany were happy because they did what they wanted to do. It was not about winning the competition, it was about performing what they had practiced, and performing what they knew they were capable of. And it was weird, and that's kind of like what I did. And so, you know, that is what um, I did. So I feel like I, I, I won in that sense. I won my comedy parlay bet. I managed to score. I beat the spread. I made out of one of the game, but I beat the spread on show one. And then uh, I managed to get over five on show two. Actually, that's not the perfect analogy because they do, uh, I think they do win. Wait, do you have to win to beat a spread? Is this, You do. Because the spread is like, you, it's it's not about winning or losing. It's by how many points you win by. Anyway, am I right about that? I don't know enough. I'm a terrible gambler. Well, apparently I'm a terrible comic too. But, but, I'm a terrible comic who filmed a special. What are we going to call it? Are we going to call it something like uh, Special Landings Playbook? Are we going to, I, I felt like, actually, if you know me and you know my comedy, let me know what a great uh, name for, for a special was. I always felt like, well, my plan had always been, 
since the beginning of time, since the beginning of my career, I was always going to call it, uh, Jamie Ward is more American. Because that is one of the themes of my comedy set. But uh, I, I feel like a more especially name for my special would be Coupon Baby. Because that's sort of uh, one of the signature jokes I have with a line that hits really hard. And it's also, you know, a little descriptive of me. I don't love it. But I don't hate it either. That's my, my default one. If somebody else can give me a suggestion, I will use the suggestion if it's good. I'm looking for ideas. Do you have ideas about what a good name... It has to be clean. I've been trying to think of maybe something that I could sneak in. I wanted to call it... Uh, what did I want to call it? Um, I wanted to call it uh, Southern Hospitality and Iced Tea. <laughs> right? But I don't... I. I would have, too, because I wanted to include a joke about it, but I didn't get it in because I didn't get uh, to do the extra jokes that I wanted because of the whole messing up the first show and having to nail it for the second one. But I really would have enjoyed calling it Southern Hospitality and Iced Tea. It's what I wanted. I was trying to come up with jokes on the fly for it. I guess I didn't deserve to. I didn't get deserve to do that much. I, I deserve to um, redeem myself with my personal uh, goals. But I didn't get to do a dirty title for a clean special, which would... Also, um, I'm going to wrap this up because I... I've got a lot of stuff to do, and I I definitely uh, want to not just ramble about non-Silver Linings Playbook stuff on a podcast that's about Silver Linings Playbook. But I am thinking, too, one, I still want to interview couples on on the Silver Linings Playbook quiz that I've gotten. I've gotten two couples, and I'd like to get some more and their opinions on stuff. But I also am learning about, I want to... Uh, I want to host a watch party on Discord of Silver Linings Playbook, and maybe we can do that as the cast. I had tried to do a watching and commentary and react podcast in the past. wasn't really great, but I have learned about um, doing, doing Discord. My girlfriend is a Twitch streamer, and she uses Discord, and she has hosted uh, anime watch parties on it. And I just learned, I'm learning about Discord and stuff. And so I think if that could be a really fun idea, one, it'd just be fun to watch Silver Linings Playbook with some other Silver Linings Playbook enthusiasts. And two, then I could get some content for my podcast so we can keep this going for a couple more weeks without me having to do these last minute ones where I talk for an hour about stuff that is not Silver Linings Playbook. Also, you can probably tell just from the tone of my voice and the enthusiasm compared to some of the past podcasts that I've done that, uh, wow, I have just the weight lifted from my shoulders for getting this milestone done. Because I think I have sounded super depressed on the last uh, year of podcast. Probably all of them. They've probably all sounded terrible. 
And for some reason, maybe it's the coffee. Maybe it's because, you know what it is? I'm recording this podcast inside my car uh, in the driveway at my girlfriend's house right now. And I spent all day drinking Milo's sweet tea and coffee. So I'm probably hamped up right now on Southern Hospitality and Iced Tea. Anyway, we will be back next week with actual Silver Linings Playbook content. And if you want to be on it, if you want to participate, if you have some ideas for my specials, uh, you're a real-life couple and want to be uh, interviewed or you just want to be a guest and talk about the movie, or if you're just my friend and want to be on the podcast and we can talk about anything, as long as we just say one thing about Silver Linings Playbook up front, you're welcome. You, of course, can contact me all the regular ways. We're on all the podcasting outlets. We are on Spotify, Apple Music, Anchor. I don't know if that's a different one. Podbean. Uh, we are on Amazon Music. We are on the iHeartRadio podcast app. That might just be the iHeartRadio app. Um, you can also contact me at, if you know me, all my emails and phone numbers and social media is the exact same. It's also in the show notes. If you want to contact me and you don't know me, feel free to hit us up at Silver Linings Playcast, S-I-L-V-E-R-P-L-A-Y-C-A-S-T. I think I missed the lining. S-I-L-V-E-R-L-I-N-I-N-G-P-L-A-Y-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Silver Linings Playcast at gmail.com. That is probably the best way for somebody who does not know me to get in contact with me. Uh, there is definitely a Facebook page that you can message or leave a comment. I'll get that second fastest. There's an Instagram page, the Instagram profile, Insta profile, as the kids are calling it these days. Insta, at Silver Linings Playcast. That is the slowest way to get me because I do not get notifications from the page somehow. I don't know how to get that set up. Anyway, contact me, listen, or don't. Don't listen. It's a terrible podcast. Until next time, we'll 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 bring you next week. Next week we'll bring you more Silver Linings Playbook content and the Silver Linings Playbook content. Until next time, we'll see you down the road and Excelsior.